Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Today's movie was suggested to us by Tom. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie is The Night of the Hunter from 1955. It falls under the crime, drama, film noir genres. The director was Charles Lawton. Uh, movies related to this director, he was uncredited in The Man on the Eiffel Tower in 1949 and mostly was an actor. He won the Oscar for The Private Life of Henry VIII in 1933. He was an actor in Spartacus 1960, also in Les Miserables 1935, The Hunchback of Notre Dame 1939, and Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kidd in 1952. Some other movies that were big in 1955, and I figure I'd mix it up here today and say some of the stars, if some of us aren't familiar with all of them. Uh, Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra's Guys and Dolls, uh, Disney's Lady and the Tramp, James Dean was in Rebel Without a Cause, as well as East of Eden, Cary Grant was in To Catch a Thief, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, and Marilyn Monroe was in The Seven Year Itch. Tom? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the plot of this movie as well as why you thought this would be a good one for us to chat about today. This is Charles Lawton's only film. He was, you know, worked as an actor, as you said, in a, on stage. Um, and this movie, based upon a novel, which itself is based upon an actual Reverend Harry Powell who did these things, did the things that I'm about to, about to recount, um, was adapted by James Agee, a famous Southern writer who died before this was finished. Um, and it is about a reverend, Harry Powell, who is also a serial killer, who, while in prison for stealing a car, learns that a widow and her two children are in possession of $10,000. He, after getting out of prison, goes to the widow, woos her, marries her in an effort to get that money. Unbeknownst to him, the widow doesn't know where the money is, but the children do. And so it becomes a contest between the will of these two children um, and him. And uh, they seem to be the only ones who are able to see through his deception. And the film follows that contest between these, these two parties. I, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. I think it's virtually perfect. Uh, you know, I, I think that it uses a collection of film techniques uh, that kind of relate to, to Caligari, my last pick, um, this kind of expressionistic thing. Um, while at the same time having these moments of incredible lyricism that, especially in, in the latter half of the picture, there's one point where the, the children move into kind of nature to escape the, the reverend. And it's this incredible lyric scene that carries through to the end of the picture. 
and I just wanted to share that with you guys. Okay, thanks, Tom. Uh, KJ, uh, did you have any familiarity with this movie before, and what were your initial thoughts? Um, I had not heard of this movie before Tom suggested it for Talking Pictures Trivia. I thought the movie was great. Um, it's everything I want out of a movie. The tone, the feeling, the pacing, the cinematography, uh, the in-movie music worked really well. I'd recommend this movie to almost anybody. So, really good movie. Awesome. I also did not know anything about this movie, and I'm very glad Tom brought it to our attention because I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually uh, told my wife, I wish she had watched it with me because I think she would like it. She likes a lot of older movies as well. And uh, this is one I, I agree with KJ. I, I would recommend uh, someone watch. I'm shocked to hear Tom's extreme high praise. It, it doesn't always come through in these episodes. So uh, I, I do agree with him and, and I like this movie. So that says a lot, um, especially coming from Tom. So uh, let's jump right into it. Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you for movie quiz. Movie quiz. <laughs> it's time for movie quiz. All right, gentlemen, let's get into movie quiz. Here we are at the first round. Each question is worth one point, unless I say otherwise. And so let me give you the categories. Here are the three categories. You can't kill the whole world into the wild, speaking from the coffin. Oh, boy. Um, let's go... Speaking from the coffin for one, Tom. Okay, speaking from the coffin for one. It's time for question one. What is the children's mother, Willa Harper, played by Shelley Winters? What is her final realization? This is an interpretive question, so feel free to think it over, come up with an answer, but... What is her final realization? Locked in. Um, a realization is like when the light bulb goes off in your head? Yes. Okay. We're using the definition of realization most people consider. <laughs> so when you say real, do you mean fake? <laughs> I think I've realized things before, but <laughs> I, I can't imagine the final one. Um, so give me one sec. Please take your time. And just to give some context while you're thinking for our audience, um, at a certain point, Shelley Winters' character, who she plays the mother of the two children, um, she is killed by the Reverend. She's killed by the Reverend, and her body is left in a lake. Okay. I think I have an answer. All right. Um, Nick seemed more confident, and since, KJ, it was your question, how about you go first? Willa Harper's final realization is the only way to get on God's good side is to be killed by the Reverend. At this point in the movie, she is obsessed with him. She didn't know it, but he's the answer to all of her problems, and she becomes hysterical, and... She's in 100%. So I don't think she was scared or afraid. I think she was with him on his killing of her. That's kind of one of the Reverend's superpowers is to get people on board with him. Kind of like the Joker from Batman. It, it doesn't matter how crazy the plan is, as long as the plan's obvious and stated, 
everybody follows. So I think her final realization is this was her ticket to kingdom come. Okay. I have a different answer. It deviates from some of where KJ was starting to dance around a little bit, but it has a different ending. I, I do not think that she welcomed her death. Her, when she was lying in bed, she was saying that she knew God brought him there to make her all she could be for the Lord. And I do not think it was a sacrifice situation. I don't think she expected that because even when it's going on, he's sneaking up to kill her. So I think uh, her realization as she's praying is saying, you brought him here to show me the way and, and, and be a better person. So I don't think, I think it was him as a vessel of the Lord. I don't think that um, she was welcoming her own death though. I think it was like, she's going through this epiphany and he's like, I got to offer. Okay. What inspires the initial epiphany? So right now we're kind of at zero and zero. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit this a little that's bit. That's fair. That's fair. So no, no, we'll that's fair. With, and this is a simpler, simpler answer. What inspires the epiphany? His amazing singing voice. I think a swing and a miss on me here. I, I don't, I, that's all I had on that one. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. will say, Nick, I think you're closer there. Yeah. So what inspires the epiphany is she overhears him speaking to John that he's looking for the money. Speaking to Pearl. Speaking to Pearl, excuse me. Yeah. Speaking to Pearl that he is looking for the money, that he wants to know where the money is. Um, just to give some context, uh, Miss, Mrs. Harper at this point doesn't think that the Reverend is there to find the money. The Reverend has lied to her and told her that the money is at the bottom of the river. Um, so one day she's coming home from work and he is speaking to Pearl about where, you know, where is the money? And she learns that that money from over here in the conversation is still somewhere in the house or, or by them somehow. Um, and so she realizes that he is after the money. That being said, her final realization as she lies down and to quote from the movie is, he made you marry me so you could show me the way and the life and the salvation of my soul. So, I think we'll reward Nick the point on this because Nick did, Nick was in on that, that he realized that in spite of the fact that this man is still coming for money, he's not honestly there to save her soul. He's not honestly there to love her or something. She realizes that, but at the same time, she's also willing to accept this because she feels her soul has been saved. All right. So I think Nick, you were the closest there and nice work. Woohoo! Woohoo! Indeed. <laughs> All right. Very good. And so, let's move on to the next question, shall okay, we? Okay. So, do I get the the pick? You get the pick. Okay. And the categories remaining are: you can't kill the whole world, and into the wild. You can't kill the whole world. It's time for question two. What is the one thing? Besides not getting his money, that Preacher Powell hates. What is the one thing, besides not getting his money, that we see Preacher Powell authentically hates? I'm locked in. I'm locked in, but I, I, think, I, I think the movie presented more than one thing. Okay. Well, um, we will start then with Nick, and then I, I would like to hear your argument, KJ. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was one major. So that's what I would say. 
he really doesn't like um uh i'm trying to think of how to put this politely like women who flaunt their sexuality that he does he's really like he it just it eats at him like literally there's scenes where he has his uh switchblade in his pocket every time he sees someone being a little flirtatious or sexual um he like opens up the uh, switchblade so he just that anything to do with that he is very against he's he literally says when they're uh married that unless you're looking the only reason people get together for that is if you're want children and do you really think you you're in a position to raise more children okay go to sleep <laughs> so that's my answer so my two was was that specifically when he's he's at like a show towards the beginning and is that a burlesque yes. he's at a burlesque and there's burlesque going on and they cut to his hand which has a tattoo of the word hate on it so that was one but i also thought he told john he well maybe he didn't use the word hate i thought he said he told john he hates when people lie to him it makes him mighty angry right so i'm going with the uh, he despises kind of lust and shows of sexuality yeah um, i would say so Two points, a uh, point yeah. for both of you. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. I would say that his hatred for liars in that context is related to the money. He's trying to get the money from them. We don't see him express a hatred for liars and lying independent of his attempt to get the money. Well, with the, the burlesque show and with, the, um, with when he first marries um, Mrs. Harper, in both instances, he demonstrates a disgust for sexuality that's independent of his attempt to get the money even in the scene where the the younger uh i guess she's the older girl of the person who the lady who takes in the orphans she uh when the reverend goes to have ice cream to get more information she's like kind of flirtatious in the sense like pretty face pretty Mm -hmm. eyes and when he's outside you actually can hear his switchblade in his pocket like Mm -hmm. open up but then the boy is there so like he he's got problems let's just Mm -hmm. put that there's a lot of uh uh, pent-up aggression in this gentleman he really believes what he believes and i think there is a true deception in this man obviously he's a serial murderer (laughs) He's, he's deceiving people but there is also something authentic about what he believes he's not fully lying he's not but I, I think he he in that same manner tom he like deceives himself because yeah. he's in this he thinks he's this thing but his actions do not match his you know proposed morality well for the the context for our audience um the he gets her children, an ice cream oh two right. children john and pearl they they escape after their mother is killed and they end up in the home of of an older widow played by lillian gish the this widow or this um single woman she's single and we know she has a kid that's all we really know about her she's raising a few kids the oldest one is ruby who is a teenage girl who's beginning to get interested in boys and um one day when ruby is out on the town she meets the reverend powell who is still looking for them so that's what we're just talking about yep okay so i think we have one more left in uh round one and we are two to one right now with Nick sneaking ahead. Mm-hmm. And so, KJ, this is your question. All right, and let's the, go into the wild. Into the wild. It's time for question three. 
All right, and this is going to be a back and forther. Uh-oh. Towards the middle of the film, John and Pearl jump onto a canoe in an effort to escape the Reverend Powell. They sail into the natural environment and embrace a new life. Gentlemen, going back and forth, starting with KJ, can you name the various animals they pass on the canoe trip? And I'm very, very liberal with what counts. So go for it. All right, let's start with the frogs. Okay, I'm going to say the horse. The Reverend was on a horse when they were in the barn and they saw the horse. I count that. Um, well, if the horse counts, then I'm going to say people, including the Reverend. They also stop at another house where I think they get a potato. Okay. It's will... not an animal. I know, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I will count people, I guess, because I want the question to continue, but I will not count potato. <laughs> no, no, I was just, uh, I wanted to make sure I captured all the people in case. Um... Oh, okay, that's all right. Fair enough. So um, people, I guess, is the animal. Uh, Nick, do you have another one? Birds. I feel yeah. like there were birds. <laughs> they're, 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 they're birds. It's in a, a particular context. Do you remember that? I just had to name the animal. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> when they stop for the, one evening, there's a caged bird. There you go. So that, that'll count. That was it. The bird in the cage. <laughs> um, well, I think any of my other guesses would just be stuff like there was probably ducks in the water. There was probably fish in the water. I, I can't think of another specific. Um, well, I, that's why I said birds, because I wanted to get rid of all the birds. <laughs> with ducks or fish during that journey. So later on in the movie, we see a rabbit and a hawk, but I don't know if that, that counts wasn't as a new journey. They, you do see the rabbit during the journey. You see rabbits. You see two of them during the journey. Wait, but he, he already said ducks and fish. But, oh, well, he got one. No, but I, I can keep naming animals until I get one right. Okay, Nick, it's up to you. Name an animal until you get one right. I feel like there was a cow. There were farms. Cow. Yeah, there was a cow. Yeah, yeah there was a cow. Okay. Now okay, back, back to KJ. KJ. You can only name one. New rule. New rule. <laughs> <laughs> A little less liberal. Um, <laughs> well, potato. I'm getting older as this question goes on. So. I feel it was a rutabaga. Um, I'm trying to think of other fauna they may have passed. Uh, does Uncle, oh, Uncle Birdie's a person? I think. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> there's liberal, person. and then there's like. <laughs> um, well, there must have been some mosquitoes. Okay, so other animals they pass. So I'm going to give the point to Nick. <laughs> okay. Well done. So, yeah, I think it's now three to one, right? Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. still loving the potato. <laughs> yeah. It's important. Two to, yeah, three to one right now. Um, <laughs> the other animals they pass, they pass a turtle. Oh, right? yeah. There's yeah. the turtle. There's the owl, and then there is, in the tree, a fox. Oh, you, you know about that fox? Um, it barks. Yeah. It makes like a times. Yeah, it makes a strange sound. Um, I don't know if that's a fox sound. I looked up what a fox sounds like. 
Um, not related to this movie, but um, I was listening to the, the song, What the Fox Says. <laughs> That's all I could think of. I'm like, that, there it is. There's the answer. Yeah. What the Fox <laughs> Says. It kind of sounds like that, but I, I'm, I'm not Fox expert enough to, to say with certainty. Um, well, imagine the Foley but, artist with this fox, and he's trying to convince the fox to make a noise so he can put it into his movie. How would you go about coercing a fox to... To make a noise? I, yeah. I imagine you record fox sounds and then you in, import it into the film. After right, but that. none of us have heard of fox, right? So I just did. Do you bring the fox into the Foley studio? Do you go out into the woods and hope? I no, think it's no, a pretty I, interesting... Yeah, an interesting conflict. I, I imagine you get it however you can. I, I would say maybe they go to the zoo. I don't, I don't know yeah. how you record. That would be a good spot. Animal sounds. Yeah. Um, this is a slight tangent and unrelated to this movie at all. But I was recently watching a Netflix show, which it doesn't even matter the context. But the lead and another person in the movie were like driving through the country, and a deer like hopped to the side and then hopped back into the woods. That definitely was not like CGI or anything, but it was just a cool shot. And they just got lucky when they were driving the car down that road that a deer jumped out of the woods and traveled and don't jump back in the woods. So I just brought up like how you couldn't train a deer to do that. So mm -hmm. it just kind of happened. I wonder if they just had the, the, the camera on him for long enough and eventually started barking. <laughs> yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit, I guess this conversation reminds me of um, one of my favorite films, Blowout. And the plot of Blowout is a, a, a sound engineer gets involved in the mystery, whatever. But how he gets involved in the mystery is he needs to get nature noises. So he just takes his sound equipment and goes outside and starts recording nature and try and hear different things to put it in. Um, and while he's doing that, he, he comes upon a, a crime. But that ends up being how in that film anyway, they, they get natural noises. So just Does that have to do with like bird sounds or something? There's bird sounds in that scene. The, the movie isn't... The no, there was some, there was something, no, there was something I saw where someone was doing, um, again, total tangent, someone was doing research on like birds or something and had cameras. This was actually not sound. This was actually video footage. And because they just randomly had a camera to follow the bird migration or whatever the heck it was the bird lifestyle they actually witnessed a murder oh you're thinking of the will smith movie with gene hackman um i never would have remembered that i can't remember the name of it now but the plot of the film and it's that guy who was in my name is earl is that a show is it enemy of the state enemy of the state Thank yeah. You. yeah okay okay That's well the there plot. you go there and you go also, there's another an older film by michelangelo antonioni um, with Vanessa Redgrave of all people, one of her mm -hmm. earlier roles, and the the it's the same plot. It's a guy is out there. The movie's called Blow Up, um, and the guy is out there doing shots. He's, he's a photographer. He's photographing things, and he blows up some of the images to put on a poster, and he sees in the background a body. And so um, those movies blow up and blow out are in conversation with each other. But well, thank you for at least making me remember what it was. Yeah, it was Enemy so, of the State. To keep this tangent going, I don't think I've seen Enemy of the State. The only thing I can remember is I was at my cousin's house and I walked downstairs and they were watching the scene in Enemy of the State where the guy gets hit by a car. Do you remember it? Mm -hmm. It's almost, and they just kept watching that over and over again. So that might be the only scene I've ever seen of Enemy of the State. It's not really Why a major part of the story. that over and over again? <laughs> it's kind of funny out of context. The guy like, could <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. That but was the, again, because someone wants to keep the tension alive. 
that was the one where Gene Hackman's character like was really like off the grid and had this whole like computer network like separate and it, it was really kind of crazy. Yeah, the, the the movie was kind of about Will Smith's character who apparently went to MIT. Will Smith has played repeated people who have gone to MIT, but anyway, he, he like he. No, I think he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Oh, is he a lawyer? I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Um, he's a lawyer. And but a really good one. <laughs> really good lawyer. But he accidentally gets the videotape of the senator having someone killed. Yeah. Um, and it's go. just a complete accident. He's in the store and the guy with the videotape knows him and just drops the videotape in his bag. And then he gets hit by a car. Yeah. The, other, the, the guy who drops <laughs> yeah. the videotape. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, Jack yeah. Black is in it. It's also an early Jack <laughs> Black movie. All right. That was good. Let's get back to the fauna, Tom. Yeah, so I, I love this sequence, and I, I want to know, I, I think it is, it's a sequence I think most people take away from it, other than, like, the chapel-like bedroom in which Shelley Winters' character is killed. Um, I, you know, this is this, this kind of amazing drive of our hero into the natural world and kind of in, embracing the natural world and kind of, um, the, the, you know, the boy Jack, he's in, embracing his role as this hero in in this story and i want to know what you guys thought of this sequence because i think it's kind of wonderful so i i'd hate to disagree but i was very distracted by pearl's song during this sequence <laughs> um i guess she's singing but it doesn't sound like she's singing it sounds like maybe one of the andrew sisters or somebody is singing actually it's, it's a higher pitch than that is singing this this song that I feel like maybe I should get a moral from. It was a little bit like, um, you know, in Full House when they're going to tell you a moral and they kind of put a song in the background. It it kind of felt a little bit like that. So I, all I could think of while I was watching this was, is that actually that girl singing? So that's another, I think I, I didn't know too many of the animals. I was kind of distracted by the, the audio at this point. Um. I was kind of dreading this question because this is the one sequence in the movie where I have a newborn in the house and he decided to wake up with great uh, ferocity (laughs) during this sequence. So I was slightly distracted, uh, but I did kind of try to rewatch it, but I I, I think I might not have caught all the nuances here. Um, But I did like the transition because I saw it from when, and I'll talk about this later, when he chases them into the boat. And then they set off and they have a little bit of a, I'd say it's fairly peaceful journey, which was very different from what they were experiencing before. So I did enjoy it, but I did miss out on some of the, the nuances there. Uh, I, I don't know if it's particularly nuanced. I think that there's just this sort of, um, you know, kind of an em- embracing the natural environment, you know, escaping into the wild too. And, um, you know, there's also a bit of, of peace for them. I, I don't, I understand what you mean by the song. I'm not entirely sure in terms of it sounding like someone else is singing it. Um, the song ends up being, I think it's the, the movie is less interested in the realism of the moment because the, the scene is unrealistic. It's kind of magical. Um, even when they stop at one point in the journey, they go in this boat ride down the river to escape the reverend for, for our listening audience. And at one point they stop at a farm and they, they go into the barn there and sleep there for the night. And the barn itself, when they stop it, it's clearly two outlines against the light. Um, and you see a bird inside one of the, one of the windows. Um, 
And so nothing about the sequence is particularly realistic. What I'm interested in, KJ, is what do you think like, the moral of it was? Or how do you think the song was moralizing? Well, one of the themes throughout the movie is innocent prey and how children can be innocent prey. Um, they often suggest that women could be innocent prey, although there's a lot of strong women in this uh, movie, especially for 1955. Just um, not the wife. Mm, she's I, I a, she's well, a follower. I she's think a she's, follower. She's, she is, but I think she's a very strong character. Yeah, but I think they imply many times, even and when there's, I love that, the one song talking about songs where they're uh, bringing in the sheep and he, everyone else is in like white clothing and he's in a black thing. So he's clearly the wolf and yeah. they're all the prey. So I, I, I really think that was a great scene when it comes to song and, and, and being symbolic there. Yeah, so I, I, that's why I say, I think she maybe in the beginning, but when he comes in, she becomes more of the follower. She, she does. I think though she finds an independent, energy at the end which kind of results in her dying but yeah. I, I think that's a kind of a different conversation um mm, which sure. I, i'd like to have but mm. what, what were you saying kj um so yeah so a big theme in the movie is there's prey and there's predators um and i don't really remember the song again i was distracted more by the tone and the voice that was used and then this you know little girl um but the i think she was singing about how little children are innocent and just want to play. And it, it was kind of driving home the point that there was no need for these kids to go through this trauma. They're just little kids. So that's mm -hmm. distracting. I think, oh, even okay. the I think even the fact that to, to that point where the money is hidden is in a doll. <laughs> like it's just kind of all together in that thought process. But yeah, based on what KJ was first saying, I think it was, and he said it at the end there that he just felt it was a distraction. Her tone in general, I don't know, that girl, when she talks, she's kind of creepy, no? She's, she's very young. No, but she's got, like, her voice is... Yeah, she, I mean, she, I, I, don't, I don't think there's propositional content there. I, I don't think, like, the movie is saying... No, I think that's just her. Or weirdo. <laughs> no, I, yeah, she's a young actress, and I think she's also, um, she's also a little... A little not with it. She's not really understanding the yeah. conflict entirely. Her brother is. And They're I think, making her young and innocent, and she's yeah. got a little bit of a annoying baby voice, I guess. Yeah, she's a little bit. Um, yeah. Oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but it, it, he's the hero of the story, and I think the story follows his necessary maturation in order to to deal with what he has to deal with, and I think the movie finds it and you see this with Lillian Gish's character who is um, we've mentioned her before but she's the woman who comes in in the second half of the film to rescue the children mm -hmm. um, she is constantly reflecting on the world is so hard to children it's so hard to these little people um, and I, I think that the movie is consciously observing the how unfair it is that children often have to mature far faster than they should have to. Well, Tom, you brought some interesting questions for round one. I can't wait to hear what you have in store for us in round two right after this quick break. Have an idea for an ad? Is it a fake product? We'll air it. Send us an audio clip of your fake ad, and after it goes through our rigorous and strict reviewing process, 
We'll fit it into an episode. Don't have an idea for an ad? Make one anyway and send it to fakeads at talkingpicturestrivia.com or call 201-467-8679 and leave a voicemail of your ad. You'd sound really good on radio. This ad requesting fake ads is a real ad requesting you to send us fake ads. Seriously, send us your fake ads. And we're back for round two. Tom, back to you. Okay, okay. so here are our categories. Number one, correcting scripture. Category two, a strange rescue. And category three, in defense. I think I know which one I'm going to pick. But Tom, how are, what are the points worth in this round? Oh, my apologies. Each question is worth two points. Okay. I think knowing that information, I will pick in defense. It's time for question four. Describe how preacher Henry Powell would describe his crimes in five words or less. This is Henry Powell, Robert Mitchum's character. How would he describe the crimes he commits in five words or less? Creativity is preferred. I think I'm locked in. So Reverend Harry Powell Mm -hmm. He's not a man of few words. He is not a man of few words, but you better be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I have something. All right. So, Nick, it was your question to start. Yes. So, Nick, it is your question to answer first. My answer is he would um, say those acts are the following that he is the right hand of god so the right hand of god is your answer okay jj all right here we go my crimes are for god ah you guys said the same thing essentially oh mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay so Can i add you- in defense <laughs> I'm giving you both two points. Oh, okay. So um, in this round, Nick was, going into this round, it was 3-1 with Nick in the lead. It is now 5-3 with Nick still in the lead. Um, so I, I found Powell's uh, response to the crimes he commits to be very interesting. And I was wondering what you guys thought of how he conceives of what he does, what his mission is. Well, first, I'd like to say I think KJ's sultry representation of the Reverend definitely gave him some bonus points there. So I All did right. get that's I, that's fair. Let's I go did. with four four then. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are now tied. I didn't want to lose points. I just wanted to compliment him. However, uh, the second part of that was going to be I don't the the reason. Uh, with his answer is the word crimes. I do not think he thinks it's a crime. So that's why I think the combination of his amazing representation, even though the word crime is there, I, I think we both deserve equal points. But uh, I did want to compliment him on that. Uh, I'll let you be the judge if you want to make the adjustments though. But um, that's the thing I wanted to say. I don't think he thinks it's crimes. I think he's acting in the Lord's justice. That was another, I was trying to play around with those words too. So he doesn't see it as a crime anytime. I just don't think it's in his vocabulary. I think 
it is amazing how he's in his own little world and his bubble, and he sees these as the righteous things to do, a means to an end, but he doesn't necessarily think he's doing wrong. I agree, yeah. I, I think that there is a sort of um, God of the Old Testament approach to what he does. I don't know. What do you think, KJ? Well, I'm going to slightly disagree with both of you. I think he, he lays it all out for us. Uh, in the first scene, when he's in the ice cream shop, um, Spoons, what's it called? In the town, there was a place called Spoons. Yeah, Spoons. Yeah, yeah. and the guy's last it. name was Spoons. Yeah, yeah, it was owned spoons by those Spoons. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. Right on the nose. <laughs> so he's in there, and um, what one of the things uh, Reverend Harry Powell does is he gains the trust of women particularly older women. And the way he does it here is he's got two tattoos on his hand. One hand has the word hate. One hand has the word love. And one of his favorite things, it seems, is if somebody asks him, hey, why do you have those tattoos? He goes into this theatrics where he talks about how hate sometimes rises, but love is always there to, I don't know, keep it in check. So I think he sees his crimes as part of that hate, as part of that, uh, you know, negative things. And he's okay because he also has the love side that he makes everything okay after he commits these crimes. I think I'm going to slightly disagree with you. I think he thinks he is the love squashing all the hate in the Mm. world. So Mm. that's why when I was making the joke or really a joke, you do a very good representation. I I think it balanced out the use of the word crime. Um, So I think we still should be awarded equal points, but needless to say, that's why I think he thinks he's the love and the world is the hate and he's there to, you know, that's just slight adjustment. We're close, but we just have a slight difference of opinion. My, the evidence I would, I would be interested in is at the beginning of the movie. So the movie opens with two openings. In the initial opening, we see Lillian Gish's character, the, the older woman who rescues the children at the end, giving a Bible instruction. The second opening, we see kids playing some sort of game outdoors and they stumble upon a corpse uh, of a woman. Um, Afterwards, we see Robert Mitchum's Reverend Powell driving away and he's talking in the car as he's driving to God. And he's, you know, he's saying, you know, you always abide, you always find money from some widow somewhere to help me along my way. And I, I, I think I'm maybe a little more on your side, Nick, in terms of, of this conversation in the sense that I think he sees the, the, the murders as part of God's plan to give him money or to give him means to preach the word. Um, because even at one point he goes, you don't got any problems with killing, Lord. There's plenty of killing in your book. Um, and I think it's just he does not see murder or death as a necessary obstacle to preaching the Lord's word. Preach on, brother Tom. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, but Nick, I do think you convinced me that you deserve equal points and are now tied. <laughs> <laughs> equal points and are now tied. So Nick, Nick, great job convincing me. <laughs> Thank you on both accounts. You're welcome, KJ. <laughs> I disagree with your angle. Equal points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just, just for the audience, what the heck are we at? Just uh, for the audience, um, we're we're at to be fair, we're at five three with Nick in the lead. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to be fair. 
and just and good. All right. Now this is Keiche's question. I believe it yes. is. It is. All right. So we have the two categories left are um, a strange rescue and correcting scripture. Let's do a strange rescue. Okay. Excellent. It's time for question five. The film ends with the Reverend Powell being taken in by the police. Um, Jack, the young man, witnesses him being taken in by the police. Why does Jack respond to the way the Reverend Powell is, is arrested at the end of the film? Locked in. Oh, yeah. All Locked right. In. And so, KJ, go for it. Well, he was traumatized by his father being taken away and didn't want to relive that trauma and tried to fix past trauma by fixing the current similar situation. Okay. Great. And Nick? The scene in which they get the reverend is very similar to the way they take down his father in the beginning of the movie. And everything, you know, same thing. It just reminded him of the traumatic event when his father was taken away by the police. But it's very, if you look at the two scenes, the way he's thrown to the ground, cuffed, you know, on the, it's almost identical. Great. Excellent. I, I'm giving two points to both of you. Excellent. Right. So we're at 7-5 with Nick in the lead. And yeah, I, I love that mirroring effect. And, you know, I love how Jack breaks at that point. And so to give some uh, context for our audience, the Reverend is arrested at the end, taken in for justice. And Jack watching this, the entire time he's been guarding the money, right? The money has been in the doll, Miss Jenny, the doll. And he's trying to keep it from the Reverend. And when the Reverend's arrested, Jack runs forward and throws the doll down. The money goes flying everywhere and goes, take it, take it, just take it. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, a wonderful, wonderful moment. And it's, you know, a devastating one as well. I was wondering what you guys thought of that. Did that, that work really well for me. I wonder what you guys thought. Yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty powerful scene. Uh, I, I have a quick follow-up regarding that. So I believe that they imply that they keep the money because all the kids get presents. Is, do I you guys feel that way or no? Because they're not in know. their town anymore. Yeah. So they're like out of that area. So I, I didn't know what your guys' thoughts were on that. I, f I feel like it, they did. I wasn't sure I if they were going to. Yeah, I don't really know. Because it, it seems out of character for Lillian Gish's, Lillian Gish's character's name is Rachel Cooper, but yeah. it, it seems out of character for Rachel Cooper to like take the money and buy things with it. Um, but they have presence. Like they also seem like they live very modest lives. So I, yeah, I, I get it was a holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. modest yeah. too, yeah. Yeah. I, um, the only reason I brought it up is like they are at the trial and then they have, they went shopping because they were in town. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I thought it'd be odd too if they kept the money, but I didn't. I didn't. Or I spent just, it. It seems odd that she yeah. would spend it, but yeah. um, especially since he is the since Jack is so thankful for the watch he gets at the end. True. It was his money that bought it. Yeah. <laughs> but but th uh, does the movie really tell us one way or the I, other? I don't think it does. No. Yeah. I don't know. Um, what do you think, KJ? Well, in Enemy of the State. One of the things that <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, um, so I had assumed the cops, he does get his wife a present in Enemy of State. In Enemy of State, anyway. yeah, um, yeah. That's that might be the better tangent. Um, the I think the cops do take the money. I did not assume that anybody else would, um, but 
that just might be because I, I just made that assumption. Um, that final scene was interesting. The, um, the one thing it was the one thing that was kind of cool about it was the money turns out to kind of be John's struggle and he was able to shed himself of that struggle just by sacrificing the money. Um, and in that case you had Reverend Harry Powell, who was an evil man, represented the devil, whatever you want to say, but also John's father brought an evil to John and said, hold on to this evil. You cannot tell anybody else about this evil. So there's a lot of symbolism with the money. So it was kind of cool to see it spread out all over the place. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, a nice reading of it. Yeah. Um, that the, you know, the, the fact that we don't know what happens with the money at the end, I think speaks volumes and, and speaks to what you're saying, KJ, yeah. that, you know, that it ends up being this kind of, this thing, because he's killed Jack's father, Jack and Pearl's father, has killed two people in order to get this money. The film is also just a little more context. It's taking place in the early 1930s at the height of the Depression. Um, and when Jack's father's in prison before he is hanged from, from murdering these two people, you know, he has this sort of somewhat, somewhat left-leaning monologue about how, like, he's tired of children going hungry. I guess it's not left-leaning, but, you know, children going hungry in the street and whatnot, and he's tired of it, and he wants to, you know, you know get the money. It, it seems like the movie is less convinced that what he is saying there is true. And I think what, you, what you're saying, KJ, that there's this, this thing that brings evil to them that they don't really seem to be in a position to even use, right, to, to better their lives, mm-hmm. um, that in the end it becomes the source of all this kid's trauma. Um, and it becomes the reason why he is, why little things are victimized. Another reason why little things, to use Rachel Cooper's term, are victimized. The scene in the courtroom, I, I think it was well done in the sense that like you're supposed to be like, or at least I feel like you're supposed to be upset that he doesn't point the guy out because he's just so traumatized at that point mm-hmm. that he's just looking straight and they want him to point at the guy who did all, and he just can't do it. And they're like, that's okay. I was like, come on, man, just point. This guy is like ruined your life. Just point at him. But that's the whole point, the whole point of the scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, well said too <laughs> that it's you know it's it's fun. this is the this is kind of the healing um part of the healing is not being the hero anymore i guess mm-hmm. well done so we're at seven five i think i got f- one more i think there's only one more for me to choose and there's only one more for you to choose so nick would you like to pick correcting scripture or Absolutely. would you like no, you just, would? Oh. i just would like to that's delightful just- it's time for question six what is the Bible story Rachel Cooper, played by Lillian Gish, tells to the children, including Jack and Pearl, and why and how does she change it for Jack? I remember the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying the second part of that question is where I'm thinking for a second. But maybe I'm not familiar enough with the origin story there. You should be able to get the answer from just what is said in the picture. I'm going to be locked in. Yeah, I think I'm locked in. Well, the first part of that question is the story of uh, Moses being found in the weeds in the river. And this is symbolic to them coming down the river and her finding them in the boat. And the second part of that question 
it had something to do with kings, something to do with kings. But I, I, I'm not going to even try to like fumble through it. There's something about this is the king. Well, is this one a king? But I, I guess there is only one true king, which is Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I can remember when they're talking about Bible stuff. So yeah, it's this, the story of Moses specifically going down the river, being found. Um, she mentions the Pharaoh. And then John gets confused with Jesus and Moses. Um, and John asks her, right? He asks her, oh, is Moses Jesus? No, he asks her to make a change in the story. Objection, and, leading the witness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think my answer is locked in right there. Kind of like, yeah, yeah, where yeah, we yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> um, there's probably ducks, fish. I think there was a seagull picking on a potato. <laughs> All What's right. the answer? <laughs> you, you guys got none of it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get half. We didn't yeah. even get half. It was uh, Moses. Like Moses. You would get story. half. Sure. It is the Moses story. So oh. yeah, you both get one point. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but the John at one point asks, "Are you sure there weren't two people in that in that raft? Are you sure there aren't two people?" And she goes, "Oh, you know what?" Rachel Cooper, played by Lillian Gish, goes, "Oh, you know what? I think you're right. I think there were two people in that boat." I, I did. I think that did happen, and I missed. Yeah, that. I missed that, that tie in here. And I, I actually think that's really, really interesting and really important for the the greater version of the film. Um, I just real. I, I was gonna say. I just realized my King Scripture comment was a different scene in the movie. Yeah, it is. It, uh, yeah, because she was saying there was this king, and then. But there's only one true king, which is Jesus. Like they went into this whole thing about kings, but I just realized that was a different sequence. Yeah, which would give KJ the lead, except I think at best you get one point, KJ. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I think that that idea is interesting. That Lillian Gish's character's approach to religion and use of scripture in comparison to the Reverend, because I don't think the Reverend, uh, or, or excuse me, I don't think. Charles Lawton. I don't think the filmmakers are um, necessarily in conflict or or against sort of religious belief or religious expression, but I think they're they're kind of carefully looking at how it's used. Um, so I was wondering what you guys guys thought of that the kind of the reverend's firebrand um, kind of private evangelical work versus the, this kind of intimate work that you see Rachel Cooper do? Well, I think it's clearly shown during their duet. So at one point, the Reverend is um, outside of the house where all the kids are, and Rachel Cooper is sitting on the front porch with a shotgun. So he's threatening them with his presence, and she's defending the house, and he starts his favorite song about leaning, um, but his version is just leaning. And she starts in with leaning on Jesus. So her scriptures seem more based in Christian mythology with the Jesus character as the guy holding you up. Whereas Reverend Powell seems that his leaning and his scripture comes from a more personal place. And it's not as important with the, the mythology behind it. I think the structure that 
Rachel Cooper is working in with the scriptures is the goal is to make positive things. Whereas Reverend Powell is using it to gain trust, manipulate, and um, ultimately steal money or obtain money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, control versus. That was, yeah, comfort. exactly. Control. Yep. That was a great scene. That's exactly when he was talking about the different scriptures. I was thinking that. And that was right there, the battle between good and evil. And even how that scene ends where Ruby comes in with the light so you can't see outside and then she blows out the candle and it's like he disappeared. Mm-hmm. It yeah. just it was a really good it was a really good scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's haunting too to, to watch it. Even we're you know, describing it. I think we're doing a good job describing it and it's still kind of inadequate because it's so, yeah, that's so, watching the two of them, these two people opposed to each other sing the same song in in a duet as they, you know, kind of somewhat look at each other across this this dark window is is kind of haunting. But yeah, I I think, I, I agree with you, KJ. I think you're right. I think that, that what's interesting is, yeah, Rachel Cooper is able to make the Bible stories work for people right it's oh that one person being in that rap doesn't work for you yeah sure there are two people you know it's just like you and pearl right now because the Um, point of the story for her as you said was to give comfort mm -hmm. so if they need to be changed a little bit to increase the comfort and the safety no problem yeah exactly yeah well well powell has yeah and it's odd because powell i don't know if he ever mentions jesus Right? I'm, I'm not positive. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could. It's being recorded. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, he, I don't think he ever does. I think in his kind of, um, his thing, it's, it's, much more, it's much more abstract. It's like these ideas are at fight. Love and hate are, are at war with each other. Or, you know, there's this kind of corrupting influence of, um, of women's bodies. Women bo- women's bodies are corrupting. Um, and when you highlight them with makeup or with clothing, face paint as they say uh you know then then that's a problem and the world needs to be streamlined and and controlled and stripped down um yeah it's, it's kind of coffined living and you know with rachel cooper there's this this you know natural world um and also this kind of uh real respect for flaws i think we see that with the relationship between rachel rachel cooper and ruby her oldest ward who um Who's you know pseudo disobeying? Uh, she you know her she's a teenager. So she's interested in boys, and she's been pretending to go for sewing lessons. But instead, she's been going out on I think Wednesday or Thursday night, and and you know seeing boys, hanging out with boys. And when she confesses that to Rachel Cooper, she just says that's that's fine. You know, love is part of being a person. Um, you know, you don't. There, there was no kind of scolding. It was just acceptance of of that human flaws come from um the best parts of us often at the end of our contest here it looks like nick squeaks out ahead with eight points to six nicely done um, nick yep got you this time but uh, you you beat me up last time so yeah. <laughs> and we'll congratulate nick with his great contest Yay! The one Yay. who really deserves congratulations is you, Tom. This was a, a wonderful set of questions, and and we really got pretty deep into the movie. I, I'm sure there's still plenty we can talk about during our upcoming movie rant section, which will be happening right after these messages. 
The power grid has been down for weeks, and who knows when it's coming back on. The only sound anyone can hear are the screams of the innocent as carnivorous zombies dig into their flesh. It's the apocalypse. You are trapped on the roof of your three-story, multi-million-dollar brownstone in Brooklyn, New York, clutching your daughter and wife close to you. Your wife, a major medical researcher at the local institution for major medical research, believes she has the cure for zombie infection. Get me to the nearest institution for major medical research, your wife yells, grabbing onto your arm as, from below, the sound of zombies can be heard slamming into your brownstone's front door. You pick your daughter up and rush for the fire exit, leaping over a tangle of cable and electric cords as you do. Seemingly unaware of the danger, your daughter begins to recite her memorized presentation for her second-grade history project on the ramifications of the Arian heresy on early Christian church thought. Daddy, listen to my big girl report, she yells, attempting to unroll her instant combustion, self-combusting poster board. Not now, darling, you whisper back. Slightly annoyed, she insists on carrying a poster board during a zombie apocalypse. No, Daddy, listen. The 4th century Christian fathers found themselves divided between a homoousism and Arianism, mutually exclusive orthodoxies attempting to interpret the Trinitarian precepts of earlier generations. Not now, honey, you whisper, secretly impressed with your daughter's elementary school. Miss Alice's second grade class must really be on the ball. But your wife's voice breaks in. They're on the fire escape. And you see, climbing the last few stairs of the ladder, a zombie, his flesh rotting off the bone. Go back, you yell, but there is nothing to go back to. The brownstone is filled with zombies. Your mind races. What to do? What to do? I got it. Without a second thought, you rip off your shoe and remove a sock, wrapping the sock over the phone wire dangling from the rooftop to the alley below. Hang on, you say, and your wife, holding both ends of the sock, you and your family, zip line off the roof and down to the alley just before a legion of brain-eating zombies explode onto the roof. But now, you're on a dangerous, zombie-filled street in Brooklyn. The Institution for Major Medical Research is only two blocks west, your wife whispers, reminding you of where she had been working for the last ten years. By creating a distinction between the unbegotten and only begotten, the Arian Creed helped establish a Christian understanding of hierarchy within the Please be quiet, you say, as your adorable blue-eyed child attempts to unroll her trusty instant combustion in order to employ visual aids in helping you understand her favorite dogmatic dispute. You run, zipping past zombies as you go. One block to go. Almost there. You're at the fence. Your wife grabs her keys and unlocks the gate. Squeezing in, your wife closes the gate and locks it. Outside, the undead reach for you, but they're locked out. Breathing a sigh of relief, you place your daughter down, turn to your wife. Now, my love, let's get started on that cure. And that's when you notice the rather long fangs sticking out from between your wife's lips. She smiles, and suddenly it hits you. She's a vampire. I never planned to release the antidote. She cackles, thunder sounding in the air. I've come here to destroy it and bring an end to the human race. The era of the vampire is at hand. This is devastating. How are you to save the human race? Suddenly it hits you. 
Vampires are terrified of crosses, and your daughter's poster board project is covered in them. Unfortunately, it is pitch black out. But you know that instant combustion poster board will explode into flames with barely a stroke, illuminating the Christian iconography, giving you enough time to stake this demon in the heart and save the human race. You grab the poster board from your child and rub and rub and rub. Oh no, now you remember. Last time at the store, you purchased an off-brand combustible poster board and not an official instant combustion. As you realize your mistake, you feel your vampire wife's teeth dig into your throat, damning the species to certain extinction. Next time, don't go with those fakers. Look for the Burnt Boo Boo Incorporated label on all your combustible poster boards to guarantee the highest quality. That's instant combustion from Burnt Boo Boo Incorporated. Set your mind on fire and also your poster board. That's instant combustion just for you from Burnt Boo Boo Incorporated. Okay, thanks again. We're back. Uh, wonderful sponsors are here as always, but we're going to get right back into Movie Rants. It's time for Movie Rant. Well, I was interested, since we've covered a lot of the plot within the questions, with what you guys thought of the style of the film. Um, Stanley Cortez, the cinematographer, who's famous for works like The Three Faces of Eve and The Magnificent Ambersons, creates a really, really memorable look for the, the film. And I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that. I have lots of thoughts on that. There are so many scenes that are absolutely gorgeous. And the way he works within the frame of the picture is amazing. Um, just to fire them off, there's a scene with the prison hangman washing his hands, talking to his wife who's cleaning a desk. And the symmetry is amazing. It, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, there's the scene where uh, Reverend Harry Powell comes in and John Harper are in the hallway in front of the house. And Reverend Harry Powell is intimidating john and john lets it slip that he knows where the money is they move in and out of that hallway amazingly um there is the shot that nick talked about earlier the kids are up in the barn and uh reverend harry powell comes across the landscape and it's just the silhouette of him on the horse and it, it it's gorgeous um there's also the shot towards the end of the movie um it's the morning after rachel cooper fires a shot at reverend harry powell and she's making coffee while the kids are on the stairs there's this great homey feel just through the frame of the shot it almost looks like a christmas card or something um so i thought the framing was great throughout the movie and i think the the one thing i would add to that too is my, my favorite still is is when they're in the barn and you mentioned it, Powell is going is on the horse yeah. and it's, it's this silhouette. It's really hard to describe, but it, it, um, it looks like an illustration. It's completely unrealistic, but it's, you know, the, just the horse moving along the kind of the edge of a hill singing. Mm. And the sound design is also beautiful at that point. Um, but the, the one thing I'd also mention is um, the bedroom. Shelley Winters' character's bedroom is it looks like a, like a small, chapel but it's cramped and in the last scene when she's in bed right before he kills her the the 
frame of it looks like a coffin. So the light that falls on her, it's it shaped like a coffin surrounding her. As she's lying in bed with her hands over her chest, talking about how God, you know, brought Reverend Powell to her. Um, and that's this great expressionistic moment where you see um, the, the tying together of this, this bedroom, which looks like a chapel, and this coffin that this woman's trapped in. Um, yeah, yeah. The other cool thing about that scene is the use of black. So the bed doesn't fit in that room. The bed is outside of the set and is just lit. So it, it, it can't physically make sense, but it works really well on screen. The other time they use that black to outline the set is in the basement. The stairs kind of go up and there's the room. Then there's black where I guess there should be something, but there's not anything. So it, it almost gives it an eerie cartoon look in a good way. I, I don't know how to describe yeah. these frames. I, I, think, I think you're right. I think we had talked about Caligari in an earlier episode. I think that, I, I don't know if Caligari is a direct influence on this film, but I think that style is um, where you do have the, the unrealistic set, right? And I think it's a great, great point about the bed doesn't fit in the bedroom, you know, <laughs> and yet there's a bed in the bedroom. Um, you know, I, I think that in the damage of Powell's mind, the world itself, the world that he inhabits sort of becomes this, this ugly thing. Beautiful to us as observers, but unreal in its physical dimensions on, on camera. Going along those points, when, when I watched this movie, the stylistic uh, uh, portrayal of the good reverend as not just a villain, but there are scenes where he actually looks like a monster. So I don't know if you remember, but when he's, whenever he's um, kind of lurking after the kids or chasing them through the woods, he doesn't just run. He goes out of his way to make different motions that he actually looks more like a monster ripping through the trees or clawing through the mud. It's, it's a little over the top, but it fits. Like they're actually showing to him that on the outside to everyone else, he looks like this polished guy. But when you get down to it, he really is a monster. I, I just loved those scenes when he did that because it, it really was that fine line between over the top and hitting it perfectly. There's another scene where he kind of does that. They're down in the basement and he's interrogating the children. Um, but... I, it, this one didn't quite work as well as in the woods. The scene ends with John Harper pulling a piece of wood to make a shelf of milk drop onto Reverend Harry Powell. And the whole thing becomes a Looney Tune cartoon. The sound of him whimpering when that milk hits him on the head. And then he gets up and he trips and he trips and he trips. It, it really looked like something out of a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the first scenes. And it's funny too, because... When he reaches for them, sometimes you can see like it's a fake reach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like in some of this. So that's what I'm saying. Like it, it, some of it was like over the top, but some of it hit. But I, yep. and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm running up the stairs in that scene too. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, like him alone or something. Yeah. Or him. I, I think when it worked too was um, him in silhouette. So when he's first, when, the, when John first sees him, he doesn't know who he is. He's just a guy outside. But there's suddenly, he's, this, he's telling the story, this kind of fairy tale to Pearl, to, to comfort Pearl. And um, when he starts to talk about the villain, suddenly the silhouette 
appears and he looks outside and the entire world is black and it looks like a soundstage. Um, but there's the, the one light with Powell standing beneath it mm-hmm. and, and those types of things. Even when, even when he's on Rachel Cooper's lawn in that last scene, um, suddenly the lawn shrinks. Like he's inside the space of the lawn, which you think he you know, wouldn't be. Uh, and when he's not there, her entire world looks natural. Like the way her, you know, she's in this natural environment. Um, it looks, you know, realistic. They go to town. They, they sort of look like, like little ducklings when they walk behind her, all the children. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he's there, it suddenly becomes a new space. The house looks different. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a great, great, it's great work done by the, the cinematographer. I think if they were going to remake this movie, which they shouldn't, but if they did, they should make it, they should remake it 10 years ago with Bill Murray as William Reverend Powell. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. I did see in your notes that you uh, said something about it. It reminded you of Bill Murray. Oh my he act, Yeah. He actually wouldn't, Bill Murray would be a bad version of it. It'd be yeah, interesting. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He could do it. I, I, he, I, yeah. I think Groundhog Day. He is. The thing with Bill Murray is Bill, Bill Murray is, uh, Bill Murray's strength comes from his self-awareness. Mm. But whenever he says something, he's sort of he he mm. knows the joke he's putting on. He knows yep, the yep. setting. True, true. Powell, Powell's deceptive, but he's and he knows what he's doing too. But it's just Powell believes everything he does. Right. But yeah. he could make it his own and have a more comedic spin to it. Yeah, and, I, I and mean, I, it would be different. But you yeah, know, it might be fine. I think we're talking like. 80s Bill Murray though. Right? Yeah, not now. Right, it would have to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. Maybe ten old. years ago is not enough. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So another thing, this movie reminded me of a lot of other more modern stuff. I think Breaking Bad. I think comparing Reverend Harry Powell to um, Brian Cranston, uh, Walter White, I guess in Breaking Bad. I think they're very similar villains. Um, did you guys see the Westworld movie from the 70s? Yes. I. There's, um, there's the man in black and the way he moves and operates is very similar to Reverend William Powell. I don't know the, the, the West, Westworld, either the, the movie, the book, or the television show, but I, I'm going to push back a little bit against the Walter White comparison. Um, I, you know, my, my thing with Walter White is I think Walter White is Macbeth. Right? Walter White is a good man who... Um, over time becomes becomes evil and is or i think evil is the wrong word he um he finds his his manhood in these these actions that turn out to be evil that do that bring a lot of evil into the world um and i i think powell doesn't have that arc of development i agree we're seeing the end of walter white's villainy in powell but I thought their mannerisms and their methods for gaining trust, control, manipulation were all very similar. But more the master of manipulation, not necessarily the whole package deal is what you're saying, Cage? I think by the end, Walter White has that similar stern look that doesn't necessarily... Yeah, they better have, but by the end of Breaking Bad, Walter White also knows what he's doing and why. And he's able to admit, I did it for me. I did it because I liked it. Powell, I simply don't think has the capacity to step outside of himself. This, this, this thing, one of the reasons I think why Walter White is, is a great character too is he's able to overhear himself at times, which is this, this thing, uh, Harold Bloom talks about it in regards to Shakespeare characters, but uh, 
what it is is you, you say something and you reflect on what you say and see yourself as saying that thing and are able to kind of make comments upon your commentary. I think Walter White gets to that point by the end of, of Breaking Bad. He's sort of able to see himself for what he's really doing and the deceit that in the end was entirely for him. The, the kind of things like, I did it for my family, you know, is, is entirely for him. No one believes that anyway. Um, and, and the Reverend Powell does not have that capacity. In a, in a lot of ways, he's a weaker character than White. He's, he's less intellectually, um, he has less intellectual capacity than White. Uh, in, in an odd sense, he has a little less lyricism than White. White is able to, to, to think more broadly than Powell. Powell's worldview is constraint and control only. I would just agree that um, Walter White is more multidimensional, whereas um, the Reverend fits within his bubble and mindset, and there's not much deviation. Another thing I'm interested in uh, is the way the Southern culture and people are pictured more broadly, the way society is pictured. Um, reminded me of this is bringing up the hangman which is an interesting thing. At the beginning of the movie, just for our audience, uh, our listening audience, um, the, fa the father of uh, Jack and Pearl is hanged for, for murder. And we have this weird scene that seems sort of out of place of the hangman going home and talking to his wife, talking about, oh, this, this is kind of a rough job. Maybe I should quit. And she's saying, no, you don't dare quit. You, you, know, blah, you don't want to go back to the mines. You don't want to go back to the mines. We also have the... Um, the people who own the soda jerk store. Uh, Icy is the, the female character who's uh, kind of like the, the stereotype of sort of a uh, over-involved in everybody's business, school marmy older woman. Um, and at the end of the movie, when Reverend Powell's convicted for murder, for murdering, I think, 25 women <laughs> at the end of the film, um, she sort of leads a, uh, a potential lynching. It doesn't happen, but she sort of leads these people, the, the townspeople, to the jail. With and a big axe. With a big yeah. axe. <laughs> big axe. And they're just like ripping out furniture, like pieces of wood. And, you know, like I guess they're going to hit him with a, the back of a bed. A bunch of torches, too. Like the, yeah. the whole, like... Mm -hmm. rebel yeah. rebel rebel <laughs> yeah like a real like like in frankenstein when they go yeah, to the castle. Yeah, um yeah. and i was wondering what you guys thought of the depiction of this culture this society within which this world operates well related to that scene i i think that's set up in the beginning with the hangman what i thought was interesting is that was almost a setup to like almost a one-liner at the end where when they're taking the reverend out into the police car, the hangman pretty much said that he's going to look forward to meeting him. Where the first one, he had a struggle with like, mm -hmm. oh, this person was just trying to, yes, he, the challenge is he did kill two people in the bank robbery, uh, but he was trying to help his family. This one, he's like, this guy is just nuts. So that one, he, he didn't mind his job so much. So I thought that was interesting. The mob kind of was a little odd, to be honest with you. The, I mean, Frankenstein is Frankenstein's monster is exactly what it kind of depicted. I mean, old school yokel uh, pitchforks and, and torches, literally, like that's what it was. But I didn't understand why they were doing that if this guy got convicted and he's going to hang anyway. So 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I find that there is a kind of criticism of this, this society in which they live, almost like, you know, that Icy. So Icy is, I think we're saying her name right, is the woman who runs the soda jerk store. Her and her husband run the soda jerk store. And um, that's where Shelley Winter's character works. And that's also where she first meets Reverend Powell. And Icy also encourages needles endlessly, Shelley Winters to marry Powell, or Shelley Winters' character to marry Powell. Well, she so just wanted him to get married, her to get married, period. Like, yeah, and she, but she also thinks Powell's like, you know. Yeah, before the he even needs. came in, he's like, you got two kids, get married. Yeah, you, you got to get married. And it's also, this guy's so great. He's so wonderful. Yeah. If she doesn't wake up, he's going to marry someone else, you know. Um, she, she wants to really kind of run this little world. And she's the first one, though, when he gets convicted to lead the mob to, to the jail. Um, she's also more than willing to run in to where the children are, are dining and say, look at the poor children, the victims, blah, blah, blah. It's not necessarily necessary to the plot to have this woman that involved in the story, right? You know, you, have, you could have just had an employer, so you should marry this guy or something. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of energy uh, that the film reserves for looking at this culture. Um, and I was wondering what kind of criticisms or affordances that the movie was making for that kind of Southern culture that was surrounding these events. The portrayal of Icy Spoon, I thought was important for the movie because it showed the audience how Reverend Harry Powell worms his way into people's hearts. Without that, it would have been confusing as to why Willa Harper did fall in love might be too strong of a word, but why she did marry Reverend Harry Powell. You could see Reverend Harry Powell at work, the steps he takes to manipulate, control, take over um, through Icy Spoon's reaction, who is otherwise a strong character. She's running a shop. As you say, she's involved in everybody's business for better or for ill. It's also a small town too. So like when you look at that, I mean, it's a dirt road. There's a few buildings. I mean, I don't think it necessarily matters if it was in the South or not. It's more that they're, you know, poor. Because the whole movie is based on him stealing $10,000. And again, going back in time, and I may have looked at somebody's notes who did the math on this. Thank you, KJ. $10,000 is about $100,000 in today's money, which is, again, money is relative. It's a fair amount of money, but in today's society, it's not going to set you for life. But maybe where they lived, that kind of money really would have, I mean, set you up for a very, very, very long time, maybe your whole life. So it's interesting to see. But I think it's more about poverty than necessarily the the location. And, of course, I always get a kick out of these movies in general with their various vocabulary and some of them I can't even pronounce. So it just, it's very interesting. But what I have learned from some of our prior episodes is that the Reverend is a perfect example of a mountebank, which may also be known as a charlatan. So I, I, I pick up something that was going back to Dr. Caligari. So I'm, I'm, I'm continually learning uh, fun words. So <laughs> I'm glad we can enrich your vocabulary here at Talking, <laughs> talking Movie Trivia. We aim to <laughs> entertain and educate. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I find her, I find Icy interesting, and I find her 
her characteristics in contrast to Rachel Cooper. Um, and Rachel, who's very forgiving of people's faults or, or human, <laughs> humanness, humanity, right? Which involves kind of sexuality, involves um, curiosity and, and struggle. And I, I think Icy has this way of looking at the world, which I think is the way that this culture, this, this town, this kind of small town, way of looking at the world. It, it's all inside I see, or she embodies it. The, the film is not happy with, almost like maybe this man would have been caught earlier for what he did if it wasn't enabled by this type of, this type of community. Um, but I'm not, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I just, I found it interesting that she is that force that gets them together at the beginning but she also comes up at the end leading the charge against this guy. She's, she seems almost as blind as Powell himself. Right? She seems as ignorant and as, uh, as unable to, to see her own responsibility in everything as Powell is. Well, we covered a lot of interesting topics here. Uh, just as we're about to wrap this up, do we think that this movie had a happy ending yes i was actually disappointed in how positive this movie ended i mean it's not it's not all cherries and roses um but in a in a post game of thrones world i was i was hoping he was going to get away with it <laughs> what but you oh i oh, ah i disagree i mean like you, you wanted to see poor john and pearl get the knife oh no 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 I didn't want him to be punished for his crimes because he'd never, well, I guess he was in jail at the beginning of the movie, but he seems to get away with things. The movie was the one time he didn't really get away with it. Yeah. Oh man. I I, I didn't want him to kill the kids. Let's let's be clear. But (laughs) it would have been um, interesting if he wasn't arrested and then maybe he got the money. Maybe he didn't. That's not too important. And ran away. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I, the the evil needs to be so the movie ends in this really comforting christmas scene where they uh they get gifts and and john gets a watch um and he's overjoyed i mean he he says it's the nicest watch he's ever gotten and he's just um you never see him this happy i mean this boy seems to be somewhat healed by by what this woman can do and i don't think you're I don't think he is capable of being that happy unless the evil he has fought against is taken out of the world. He has to fulfill his mission, right? Which is to prevent Powell from getting the money. Even if he, John, doesn't get the money, he has to, he has to go through that journey and succeed in that journey. And once he does, he can then be healed. I think there that's was, part of it. There was a scene earlier in the movie after the, the, father was hung that or hanged i think is correct hanged yeah that he is staring in the window of a store at a watch with his sister and so at the end it it wraps up but i think it's that same lady who in that scene says oh you you're still out of school yeah you guys are having a really bad time like she's really laying it on thick that your father just got killed <laughs> and the, you can't and, have that watch <laughs> and the school kids too right the school kids they're singing, singing about that they're the drawing uh, the image of yeah. a, a body and, and then 
and then to wrap it up as they're running, as they're walking away, and I think I'll leave it at this, this the, the Pearl, with her wonderful voice, starts singing the Hanged song, the Hangman song. And he's like, you can't sing that. You're not old enough. Yeah, you're not, you're not old enough. So, well, uh, uh, Tom, thanks again for bringing this one to our attention. I, I think we both thoroughly enjoyed watching this one as well as talking about it. And uh, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us the next time you're in the rotation. Uh, I'd like to once again uh, congratulate me, Nick, for winning this one in the most benevolent way possible. Uh, thanks again to our amazing editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's, which is my recommendation from 2015, Mad Max Fury Road. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.